Okay, there we go. So we are in Romans 9. We began last week and looked at the first uh, five verses of Romans 9. And we want to pick up today with verse 6. And ideally, I'd like to get down through verse 13, but there's a ton of material in there. So uh, we'll just see how far we manage to get. Uh, I didn't pass out the study sheet. Oh, I did pass out the study sheet. Okay, you got those. All right. Okay. Uh, so that study sheet uh, is for next week, uh, assuming we get everything done today that we planned. Otherwise, it'll be for the following week. Uh, let's begin by reading in verse 1, which, as I said, was where we were last week. And read down through verse 13 and then kind of review some of the things we talked about last week and uh, and then pick up with today's lesson. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises and whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay. well, before we get to uh, the passage we're going to look at today, and obviously there's much in there I'm sure you're anxious to talk about. But before we do that, let's go back and think about what are some of the things that we talked about last week. In verses one through five. Um, he was sent to the Gentiles, and so a lot of the Israelites saw that as concerning the fact of their culture and not, not wishing them to know the truth. Okay. As a traitor. And when you're speaking to him, you're talking about Paul. Yes, right. Okay. So, so the, the, the point is that that Paul, because he has this ministry to the Jews, he is the, as he calls himself, the apostle to the, or excuse me, to the Gentiles. He calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, that there are, there are many Jews who feel like he's just kind of jettisoned the whole Jewish thing. It's just no longer relevant. It's no longer pertinent to him. And he no longer cares about the Jews. 
And so Paul's initial comments, his opening comments here in chapter 9, are, are intended to demonstrate that, in fact, he still cares a great deal about the Jews, that it's still a really big issue to him. And he's going to, and he's going to take several chapters here. Now, he's going to take three chapters to talk about it. So, what else? Uh, did you bring your fly swatter? Did I bring my fly swatter? I didn't. Fly swatter back to Doug. Well, uh, you get him. Al is going to grab his chair. I didn't. I wasn't here. I didn't hear what he said about this, but I'm really intrigued by the fact that he says, "I tell you the truth, and I am not lying." Okay. Why would he be compelled to say such a thing? As if, okay, I may have been lying in verse <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, actually, the point that Debbie brought up actually addresses that. Is there are there were many people who really questioned his motives. They questioned his sincerity. And so when he when he starts to say about this great sorrow and this unceasing grief, their argument might be, well, yeah, right, sure, Paul. I mean, look at you. You've 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 abandoned the Jews and you've gone to the Gentiles and you preach a gospel that totally just dismisses the Jews and everything we believe and everything we held and the importance of the Jews. So we really don't believe you. And, his, and so that's why he says it the way he does, because there are people out there who are inclined not to believe him. And so he's really emphasizing this idea of, of, his, uh, of his integrity. Yes, uh, Herb. Also in the nation, uh, with the heritage from Jacob, is this idea that these people treasure deception, trickery, falsehood. Oh, okay. That's part of part of Jacob's life. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> children inherited. But if you think about it today, I don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism uh, here, but, but there is a reputation of deception. And Jesus addresses this when he says, you swear by the altar, but not the gift on the altar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a yes and yes and no to make. Paul may be just trying to confront any doubt here that he might be employing his, his pharisaical liveliness to deceive somebody or trick them in. Okay. He wants them to know that that's off the table. Great. Good. Okay. Anything else from last week? <clears throat> Maybe I can prime the pump here a little bit. We talked a little bit uh, well, actually quite a bit on just kind of introductory thoughts on chapters 9 through 11 uh, and uh, what, uh, how, how we should approach chapters 9 through 11. Did you get him? <laughs> how we should approach chapters 9 through 11. And so did you have any thoughts on, uh, or, or do you remember anything we talked about last week about how we approach Romans 9 through 11 or what is, what is Paul trying to establish in Romans 9 through 11? Okay. Okay. Uh, and and the real the real issue here in in this passage, really, what's really at stake in Romans nine through eleven is can God be trusted? 
That's what's at stake in Romans 9 through 11. Can God be trusted? Have, because he has just asserted in the, at the conclusion of chapter 8, uh, he's just asserted that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Okay. But of course, if in fact we discover that Israel has been abandoned, that God has abandoned Israel, that God has rejected Israel, then of course that cuts the rug out from the end of Romans, uh, end of Romans 8, doesn't it? And it makes us wonder if God could, if God could forsake Israel, if, God, if God's word concerning Israel could fail, then certainly it's possible God's word concerning us could fail. Okay, So there's really a really critical issue here at stake in this question of of the nation of Israel as it relates to the gospel and whether or not uh, whether or not God's word has somehow failed in regard to Israel. And if it has not failed, how can we see that it has not failed? In other words, what Paul is really seeking to demonstrate in Romans 9 through 11 is that God's word is not has not failed that his purposes are being fulfilled and are being accomplished. And this is how we can see it. This is the evidence of that. And Paul is going to establish that. So my hope is that by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, instead of concluding, as many people do, well, Romans 9 through 11 is just about the Jews and so we really don't need to think about it. Or Romans 9 through 11 is so complex and so difficult, I'm not going to bother with it. Instead of that, that we would carefully think about what God is saying in these chapters and that by the time we reach chapter 11, we will reach the same euphoric, ecstatic thrill that we see Paul himself experiences by the time he gets to the end and reaches his grand conclusion that God is in fact working according to his purposes, according to his plans, which were stated from time immemorial, and that God is faithful and that he's working and that he's accomplishing his great purpose. And his great purpose is the salvation of the nations, the proclamation of his glory to the ends of the earth. That's what God's about. That's what God is doing. And here is the evidence of it that we see in 9 through 11. So it's really an exciting passage uh, once you unpack it and get the idea of what uh, Paul is trying to communicate. Well, uh, and then just real briefly, the other thing that I stressed last week, we do this, of course, we seek to do this with every passage of Scripture. It's imperative that we do it in Romans 9 through 11 as well. Is that every verse, every statement, every portion of these chapters, 9 through 11, have to be taken within their context. When they're lifted out of their context, then you get all kinds of weird ideas about what God is saying in Romans 9 through 11 or what Paul is saying in 9 through 11. So each passage, each word, each thought that Paul communicates needs to be taken in its immediate context. We have to look at it and we have to say, how does this fit with the, what Paul is saying in this immediate area? Then we need to ask ourselves as well, how does this fit with what Paul is saying in 9 through 11 in this whole section? He's got, a, he's got somewhere he's going. How does this piece fit with the puzzle of 9 through 11? Then we have to ask ourselves, how does this fit with Paul's overall theme of, nine, of the book of Romans and Paul's overall purpose. 
As I mentioned last week, some people think it doesn't fit at all. Some people think that Romans 9 through 11 is just kind of an excursus or an appendix, just kind of tacked on to Romans. And really, the bulk of Romans is 1 through 8 and 12 through 16. And 9 through 11 is just kind of stuck in there, kind of extraneous information uh, about the Jews that we really don't need. Okay, Or maybe we really do need it, but it really doesn't have anything to do with Romans. My argument is it has a great deal to do with Romans and with all that Paul is trying to teach us in Romans. And then finally, we want to see it not only in the context of its immediate context, in the context of 9 through 11 and the context of Romans, but we need to see it in the context of all of Scripture. This is particularly important in 9 through 11 because, as I mentioned last week, a third of Paul's quotations or citations of the Old Testament in all of his epistles, a third of them occur in these three chapters. So of all of Paul's writings, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc., of all of Paul's epistles, there are about 90 citations of the old, from the Old Testament, and roughly a third of those occur in these three chapters, Romans 9 through 11. So in other words, clearly what he's saying in 9 through 11 fits within the context of all of Scripture, and so we need to ask those questions as well as we go forward. Well, let's pick it up and read again the verses we want to look at today, beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived by twins, uh, conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay? Well, uh, obviously, as I said, there's a a great deal of uh, tremendous interest and concern that people have in these verses we're looking at today. So let's tackle them and see what we can figure out. Uh, he says, uh, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He, he kind of raises the specter in our minds that some people, having seen what he has just said in the preceding verses, might conclude that somehow God's word has failed. We have to remember that the book of Romans is written in the, probably somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., which places it just four or five years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, the demolition of the temple, and the termination of temple worship. Okay? So this really, this, we are really reaching the, the far per- perimeter, the, f- the far extent of Israel as we have known it since Sinai. Okay? It's really coming to an end here within just a handful of years from Paul writing this. Okay? And as we look at those things that Paul said about the Israelites in verses 4 and 5, he says, who are Israelites, 
to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the all of this is, is has either by now become irrelevant or is about to be eradicated. Apparently, from a human perspective, all of this is ending. And Paul is out here preaching the gospel and talking about salvation by faith and that you're not saved because you are a descendant of Abraham and you're not saved because your works. These are all things he established early in the book of Romans, okay? But that salvation is by faith. He's out there preaching all of this and, 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 and we can already now, since the time clear back in the days of the prophets, we can write the word Ichabod over Israel. The glory of the Lord has departed. There is that dramatic scene in the Old Testament where we have had uh, since uh, Sinai or since the wilderness, we have had the, the visible Shekinah presence of God with Israel, continually with Israel up to that period of time. There was, they were, he was there. His presence was visible in the cloud and in the, and in the flame. His presence was visible over the, over the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies through this whole period of time. But you reach a point in time where Israel has turned its back on God so bad that finally you have this scene in the Old Testament where the presence of God actually departs from the temple. And there's a step-by-step progress where he comes out of the temple and he goes out to, I forget exactly how it words it, but he goes out to the edge of the city and then finally over, and he's gone. And we no longer have the Shekinah glory with Israel. Okay, this is history. Okay, so although we have uh, the temple worship still going on, but in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul, the presence of God, in the sense that He had been there before, is now history. It's no longer true. Okay, so we no longer have the presence of God. We we certainly have the Israelites. We have the physical descendants, but the the real spiritual dynamic and reality of, of Israel has departed. And if this is true, then is it not true that God's word has failed? Because God had made all these promises and God had said all these remarkable things about Israel and God had spoken about his purposes for Israel. He had told Abraham, he says, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And, and, and he talked about how he was going to show his glory and his, and his magnificence in Israel so that all the nations might see the glory of God and might come to his presence and might come into an experience of the reality of the God of Israel. And this was God's purpose for Israel. This was God's purpose for the descendants of Abraham, that through, him, through them he might display himself to the nations. And he made this clear throughout the Old Testament. He said it over and over again that this was his purpose, that this was his intent. That this is for what he this is what he had called them for. This is why he had set them apart. Okay. But now all of that is lost. As we talked last week, Paul talks about this remarkable sorrow he has as he grieves for his people, and he's very specific here. And I want you to notice in verses four and five, he's very specific. These are, in fact, his brethren according to the flesh. He's talking about the physical descendants of Israel. Of of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Okay, so so they are the Israelites, and and these all these things were all true about them, but they're no longer true. And so, as I said last week, it's like it's like when we go and we view 
ancient ruins. And I asked, uh, apparently not many of you have had the opportunity, but I'm, I told you the story about my viewing the ancient ruins there in far southern Russia in Durband and told you that story, but I've had the opportunity to see uh, the Egyptian pyramids. I've had the opportunity to see some of the ancient ruins in Israel and in Rome and in Greece and in places like that that I've had an opportunity to see. And, and, and we look at those and we reflect on those. And there's a kind of your historical uh, uh, beast like I am. You, those are kind of really cool. But what's really significant about those is that they represent once great civilizations. That's what they represent. It's not that they're just a pile of rock, but they represent a civilization at one time that was really great and powerful and did really awesome things. And you look at the Colosseum in Rome or the Acropolis in Greece or the pyramids in Egypt. When you look at these things and you think about what they represent. Well, that is in a sense what Paul is doing there in verses 1 through 5. He's looking on the ruins of a once great civilization. And he is moved with sorrow and unceasing grief. Because he sees what could have been and it is no longer. He sees what was once and it appears to be no longer. And so the troubling question comes to our mind then, has God's word failed? Now it's interesting, oftentimes Paul in his in this kind of dialogue technique that he uses throughout Romans, he'll ask a question, he'll answer it, he'll ask a question. But in this case he doesn't even ask the question. He just states outright. It is not as though God's word has failed. Okay, they're just, just not, you know, let's not even countenance the question, he says. It's not as though God's word has failed. And when he's talking about God's word there, he's talking about the things that God has promised and the purposes that God has stated, particularly in regard to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel. Okay, that's what he's referring to when he's referring to God's word here. Has God's word failed? Has God's have God's purposes that He has stated and the promises that He has given for Israel, have they failed? And the word failed there is kind of a cool word. It means to have fallen. Okay. And it's used in a variety of ways in Greek literature, but a couple that caught my attention were, one, it's used in reference to a flower that has withered and its petals have fallen to the ground. We all know we all know that experience, right? We wrestled with it last year through the drought, right? <laughs> we planted those flowers out there in the yard, and it was just a losing battle. Twenty-five some days over a hundred degrees, and and you know, and the city saying you can only walk, you know, and 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 we just we just lost some. <laughs> you couldn't keep them, and they were beautiful to start with, but eventually you came out there and you saw the petals just lying on the ground. Is that a description of God's promise? and purpose for Israel. That it was once a beautiful and glorious thing, but now the petals of its glory are falling to the ground. Another example, another way that it's the word was sometimes used was to refer to a ship which had gone adrift and eventually run aground. You know, a ship is going somewhere. It's carrying cargo or passengers and it has a purpose and it's headed in a direction but there's something very unsettling about the thought of a ship adrift, right? Because it's lost its purpose. It's, 
lost its direction and it's just out there kind of at the mercies of the climate and the mercies of the winds and it's just adrift and eventually tragically runs aground. Is this what's happened to the promises of God? Is this what's happened to God's purpose for Israel? That is the question of Romans 9 through 11. Keep that in mind. Don't ever forget as you're going through Romans 9 through 11, that this is the dominant issue. This is the question Paul is addressing. He is intent on proving that God's purposes for Israel and that God's promises to Israel have not failed. The petals of that flower have not fallen to the ground. The ship of God's purpose and plan for Israel has not gone adrift. It has not gone aground. God is still carrying out that purpose and those promises still are rock solid. Well, that's easy enough for Paul to say, but can he prove it? And so that's what he sets out to do. He says... In verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed, he says, because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And so Paul now is going to explain to us that there are really two Israels. We have to keep that in mind as we go through Romans 9 through 11. We have to keep in mind that Paul actually talks about Two Israels in Romans 9 through 11. And we have to, as we see Paul discussing Israel, we have to ask ourselves, which of these two Israels is he speaking about? Because when it comes to the promises of God and the purposes of God, they stand in respect to one of those Israels, but they have no application to the other one. And this is what he's going to establish for us. Now, it's very clear that he talks about two Israels, even though in the end of verse 6, you'll notice he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. It seems like he's saying there's only one Israel, but really he's already established there are two Israels. Because you'll notice in verses Verse 3 and 4, at the end of verse 3, he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh. And the beginning of verse 4, he says, who are Israelites? So in 3 and 4, he's talked about an Israel that is Israel according to the flesh. That is, they are his kinsmen. This is a real entity. He's not saying that there is no Ethnic Israel. There is an ethnic Israel. Paul recognizes it and he is moved and exercised about his love and his concern for ethnic Israel. That's what he's just articulated in verses 1 through 5. There, is a, there, there are my kinsmen, according to the flesh, he says, who are Israelites and I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief for them. So we have on one part, we have Israel who are the kinsmen, or I would call them ethnic or national Israel. Okay? But he says, in verse 6, he says, but wait a minute. 
they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So he begins to talk about here what some commentators call, and I like the phrase, true spiritual Israel. Okay? So there's a true spiritual Israel. And, uh, and this can get a little confusing for us, so hence my diagram here. Um, we have then, you'll remember back in Romans chapter 4, and uh, he talks about uh, he talks about how all of us who believe, all of us who are believers, all of us who have faith, like Abraham, are the descendants of Abraham, right? So he talks about this kind of spiritual reality, this group of people who are all descendants of Abraham, whether we're Gentiles or Jews, right? So we have this kind of other group of people and Paul's one of them. He's a Jew and I'm one of them and you're one of them if you're a believer and you're a Gentile. Okay. So we have this other circle of people and they're believers. Okay. And this circle overlaps because some of these believers are Gentiles, but some of them are ethnic Israel, right? So there's an overlap here, right? Does it make sense? Okay. Now, sometimes when Paul's talking, like in Romans, earlier in Romans or in Galatians, when he's talking about this kind of true spiritual Israel, he's talking about this group. What's another name for this group? Pardon? Believers, I got that's what I got up there. I want another name <laughs> besides believers. What, children of Abraham. Uh, well, what's the church? We use it all the time. The church, okay? It's a church, okay? And the church includes Jews and Gentiles, they're believers. And sometimes when Paul's talking about true spiritual Israel, he's talking about the church. But what we have to determine in Romans chapter 9 is when he's talking about true spiritual Israel. Is he talking about the church or is he talking about this little segment right here? Okay? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And it becomes clear as we go through chapter 9 that in fact, this is what he's talking about in chapter 9. So in other words, sometimes when Paul talks about the idea of the descendants of Abraham or true, or true Israel, he is talking about the church. And Paul does talk in those terms sometimes. But in Romans chapter 9, when he's talking about the true Israel, he's not talking about the church, all of the church. There are several reasons why we believe that. Uh, one is that, uh, is that when he sets out to define this true Israel that he's talked about at the end of verse 6, in verses 7 through 11, he, he begins to define who this group is. And in, in, and in all cases, in his definition, he refers to those who are physical descendants of Abraham. So he talks about Abraham and, of course, Sarah. He talks about Rebecca. He talks about 
he talks about Isaac, he talks about Jacob, he talks about Ishmael. He doesn't actually mention him by name, but he alludes to Ishmael. He talks about Esau. Okay, so he's t- so in, or- in order to define who he's talking about when he's talking about true spiritual Israel in 9 through 11, he identifies them as being people associated with this physical lineage. Okay. Another reason that we believe that it's this little group right here rather than the church as a whole is because when he gets later into chapter 11, he's going to introduce the concept of the remnant. Okay? So he's going to be talking about the remnant. Well, clearly when he's talking about the remnant, he's talking about that small portion of Israel that's left over that still believes. And he's going to make a big issue out of the remnant. Okay. So all of this is just to say, and there are other reasons why we, why we see this as well, but all of this is just to say, I want you to understand, when we're talking about the true spiritual Israel in the per- verses that we're looking at, we're talking about this group that he will later identify as the remnant. We're talking about this little group right here. Okay? And at the time Paul's writing that, it is a little group indeed. But when Paul is talking about, is God's word true? Is God's, is God's purpose still being fulfilled with Israel? And he's going to argue emphatically that it is. He's not going to try to prove that it's true for this whole group. He's going to try to prove that it's true for this group. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, we're going to find out that in God's plan, because of the way God is working, that actually at the end, this group's going to get a lot bigger. Okay? It's going to get a lot bigger at the end. But right now, it's just a remnant. But God's promises are still working. They're still real. And they're still true for this group. This true spiritual Israel. Well, how in the world can Paul argue this? How can Paul claim that there is this kind of really true Israel within the bigger scope of ethnic Israel. How does he get away with that? Is he just pulling that out of thin air? Or does he have some basis in Scripture to argue that? Well, that's his whole point. That's what he's doing in these verses in 6 through 13. He says... For they are not all Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. There in verse 7. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So, let's just, uh, let's just erase this part of my diagram here. And... Uh, and, and just kind of rework, rework it here so we can kind of keep clarity here. So we have ethnic Israel. We have ethnic Israel. And within ethnic Israel, we have true Israel. Okay. What makes someone a member of true Israel? What are the two absolute essential things to make somebody a member of true Israel. Pardon? Okay. The one thing is there is the promise. Okay. Now that's the part 
that we wouldn't normally, we might not necessarily pick up on. There's something else that's so obvious that you probably might miss it because it's uh, so obvious. What else has to be true about you if you're going to be part of the true Israel as Paul defines the true Israel in Romans 9 through 11? Meaning part of ethnic Israel. What has to be true about you? Okay, you've got to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Okay, you've got to be, you've got to, to be, to be one of these, you've got to be in this circle, okay? Now, you, you know, again, if we go back to Romans 4 or we go to Galatians, if Paul's talking in that other terms, then no, we, we are descendants of Abraham. So we don't have to be a physical descendant of Abraham. We can just be, this, but, but that's not how Paul is talking in Romans 9 through 11. That's not his point. Okay, so to be part of the true Israel that he's talking about in 9 through 11, I have to be a descendant of Abraham, but I also have to be an object of the promise. And so he uses as his first example, Abraham and Abraham's descendants. How many sons did Abraham have? He had a bunch of sons. Yeah. He had Ishmael, he had Isaac, and then he had all the sons of Keturah. What were they, 12 sons or whatever? Eight sons of Keturah or whatever after Sarah died. So he had all these sons. So he had all these sons. How many of those are considered to be a descendant of Abraham? One. Who is that? Isaac. Why? Because he was the one that was promised. Because he was the one that was promised. So actually, Abraham has this kind of running over a period of years, has this running battle with God. So after, you know, God's promised him he's going to have a son and then for a long time he doesn't have one. And then God comes again, he makes this great promise and Abraham goes, come on, God. This isn't working. How about if we do Eliezer of Damascus, my, the, the top man in my household? How about if we make him my heir? He'll be the fulfillment of the promise. What does God say? No deal. No deal. I've made a promise and it's going to be through your body. Okay. Well, well enough. They go on for a while longer and and God keeps promising and nothing happens. And so finally, Sarah comes to Abraham and she makes a pretty good argument, actually, because she says, this is between the texts, I can assume she said this, well, Abraham, God really only said it's going to be through your body. He didn't say it was going to be through my body. So how about we just let you use Hagar and you can have a child through Hagar? Well, of course, Abraham did that. But that is not what God meant by his promise, of course. And so the next time he comes around, he says to him, listen, I'm trying to be clear here, but let me spell it out for you. It's not just through you, but it's through Sarah. And he says, in a year from now, when I come back, Sarah will have a son. This is the promise. And so, there are several descendants of Abraham who are not considered to be, he says, the children of God. That's what he says there in verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be called, verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. So it's not enough that they just be of the flesh if they're going to be in this true Israel. 
they have to also be the object of the promise. Now, what is the promise? He says it's the promise. The promise decides. What is the promise? Now, I know you're looking at me and you're going, okay, there's all kinds of promises. Well, he tells us. What does he tell us? Pardon? What? What did he say? What did he, he say? This is the promise. He, I mean, can't, can't make it any more black and white than this. This is the promise. What? At the time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Okay. So he promised Abraham. He promised Abraham. So he made all kinds of promises to Abraham. Right? But specifically, the promise Paul is identifying here is the promise that God made right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the, the promise that God made when he said, a year from now, I'm going to come back and Sarah will have a son. You say, is that what I'm saying? No. No. Uh, uh, no, I'm not. Because, because, the, uh, because his, his point is that even the ethnic Israel is determined at the outset by, the, by this defining limit. But it gets a little confusing because remember when God instituted the, the right of circumcision... Who gets circumcised? All the men, which included Ishmael. Okay, so they all get circumcised. Okay, but but there is this the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and that blessing upon the nation as a whole. And there are these. Blessings that are upon the nation as a whole. The blessings that are upon the nation as a whole are specifically designated to those that are of the promise. Okay. So, what he's trying to say is, even ethnically, you're not a descendant of Abraham. You're not part of the nation of Israel unless you are a descendant of Isaac. Okay. So, when we, when we get to this idea of the true... Uh, how do I say this? When we get to the... When we get to the concept of the true spiritual Israel, this is going to be after Isaac, after Jacob. I'll show you. What I, I'll try to show you what I mean when I get there. Okay. So the point is, is that you don't even get included in this group, in the nation of Israel, in the ethnic group. You don't get included in that unless you're a descendant of Isaac. So it's by the promise. Okay. So all Paul is trying to establish here is that you cannot claim that just because you're a descendant of Abraham, you get in on all these bennies. You can't claim that because there are clearly some who don't. And he uses Abraham and Isaac. But the situation with Abraham and Isaac is a little ambiguous because you have Abraham, but then you have two women. You have Hagar and you have Sarah. And you have two children who were born at two different times. And so somebody could argue and say, well, of course, Paul. Obviously, I mean, Hagar was a handmaid, he wasn't his wife, and, you know. And, and so obviously it had to be 
through Abraham and Sarah. In other words, it had to be by the natural husband-wife relationship. So, so of course Ishmael's not included, but of course I am because I'm a product of Abraham and Sarah. So Paul goes on now and he brings up his second example in order to blow that argument out of the water. And his second example is what? Okay. Okay. Rebecca and uh, and uh, Isaac and Rebecca uh, and specifically he brings up the subject of Rebecca. Before he just talking about the guy, but now he starts talking about the woman. Now why is he doing this? Well, partly because he needs to show that even in even though in or even in Abraham's case, we have an example of the promise being evidence that, that not everybody gets in on the benefits. But you might be able to argue your way through the, out, of the, out of the Abraham thing and say, well, but, you know, I'm part of Abraham and Sarah. I'm descended from Abraham and Sarah, so I'm in because I am of the lineage of Abraham and Sarah. So now he mentions... Isaac and Rebecca, and he specifically mentions Rebecca, and he says, uh, verse ten, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived by one man, our father Isaac. Now it's an interesting thing what our translators do with this verse, because this verse is actually in the Greek is pretty graphic. And so, in respect for our 20th and 21st century sensibilities, they have kind of made it a little milder. <laughs> Not quite as graphic. Okay. <clears throat> but the word twins, you'll notice in your translation, is probably an italics, right? What does that mean? Some, some people think it means because it's the most important part of the verse. <laughs> probably it isn't there. It isn't in the te- it isn't in the original text. Okay, it's added there to give clarity of thought by the translators. Okay, and so they put it in italics so you'll understand that. So really, he says, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived by one, and then they put the word man in there. But that's really not an accurate translation either, because what it really says is by one act of sexual intercourse. And what Paul sets out to do when he begins to talk about Isaac and Rebekah and their sons, Jacob and Esau, is he's setting out to show the absolute indistinguishability of these two characters when the promise was given. Different promise, incidentally, than the promise he mentioned before. The promise before was... I will come and Sarah will have a son. That was the first promise. Okay. Now he's going to mention a different promise. A promise regarding Jacob and Esau. But this promise was given to Rebekah at a point in time when the, when, the, when the two boys were indistinguishable from one another as far as anything that we, could, we would normally base as a reason why God might favor Israel over any other nation. 
what he's saying is, okay, you have Abraham and he has relations with Hagar and he has relations with Sarah and there's two. Okay, so that's all, you know, so maybe you can make an argument there that you ought to be favored because you're, you're a descendant of Sarah through Sarah. But that's not going to work when you get to Rebecca. Okay, because she conceived twins, she conceived in one act of sexual intercourse with one man at the same time, two children. And he's going to go on in verse 12 and verse, in verse 12 and talk about the promise that was made at that point. But before he does that, he adds the parentheses of verse 11 to accentuate the indistinguishability of these two gentlemen, Jacob and Esau. And so, and the importance of that. Why that is important. That, so that's all in this parentheses in verse 11. He says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. So, there's no basis. God's going to make a promise. And in His promise, He's going to favor Jacob over Esau. We're going to see that in a minute. Okay. So, God's about to make a promise about these two children in Rebecca's womb. Now, Rebecca, when she conceived, she had these twins in her, but she didn't know she had twins, but she didn't know this was the worst imaginable first, nine months, first three months of pregnancy, first trimester you could ever imagine. These kids were tearing her up. And she actually thought she was going to die. So she went to God and she prayed and she said, God, what's going on here? I'm dying. And God explained it to her. While she was still pregnant, while these two little babies were still in her womb, before either one of them, Jacob or Esau, had done anything good or bad, there's nothing really to distinguish them. When you got twins, they're born at the same time, okay? As far as the idea of lineage is concerned, and as far as the idea of works is concerned, there's nothing to distinguish them. And that's the important thing we need to remember. That Paul is here addressing the two arguments that a Jew makes as to why he should be favored. And his two arguments are my lineage and my works. Right? My lineage and the law. Those are my arguments for why I should be favored. And Paul's saying, this whole story of Rebecca blows a hole in that, folks. Because God favored one over the other and they both had the identical lineage and neither one had done anything good or bad. So, why did God do it that way? Well, He tells us why He did it that way. He did it that way, He says in verse 11, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand not on the basis of works, but because of Him who calls. God has a purpose. A purpose for who? What is, what is the whole point of Romans 9-11? through 11? Keep it in mind. What is the point of Romans 9-11? through 11? Has God's word failed regarding what? Israel. Okay. 
Now he wants to prove that God's word stands true regarding the nation of Israel independent of lineage or works. Okay? This is what he's trying to establish. That God's word is true concerning this group of people. Now, we've identified this group, okay, as being, we've we've isolated the ethnic group by the promises. But eventually, we're going to figure out that this true group is not just those who are ethnically identified, but those who are also spiritually identified. But we'll have to go on in Romans 9 to see that. Okay, but his argument here is that we have these two guys and they're indistinguishable from one another in the two respects which the Jew would typically use to identify himself as being deserving of God's favor. And that is that he is of the lineage and that he is of, he has the works. Paul says, nothing doing. Now that's the parentheses. Now he's going to go back and talk about the promise that God made to Rebekah in verse 12. So God comes to Rebecca, or more correctly, Rebecca goes to God while she's pregnant, while these twins are struggling in her womb, and God speaks to her and he clues her in. And he says in verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now that's actually only part of what God said. But it is the crucial part as far as what Paul is trying to communicate here. Is that God made a promise to Rebecca that the older of what was in her womb would serve the younger. The question is, what was in her womb? Remember, she'd gone to God and you know, she thinks she's dying because of probably many women in pregnancy she thought she's dying, but But I mean, this woman really thought she was dying. And she goes to God and God says to her, there are two, what? Nations. Genesis chapter 25. What God said to Sarah was, there are two nations in your womb. And the older will serve the younger. The older what? The older nation. There are two nations in your womb. And the older will serve the younger. Now we know that Paul here is talking not about individuals. But he's talking about nations. We know that because that's what God said to Rebecca. It's two nations in your womb. We know that also because, you remember when we went through Genesis, we discovered that Esau never served Jacob. Esau never served Jacob. The two men, never, Esau the man, never served Jacob the man. In fact, if anything, it was the other way around. We see pictures of Jacob bowing down to Esau. We, send pictures of, we see pictures of Jacob sending enormous gifts to Esau. We see Jacob begging for Esau's mercy. We don't see anything like that of Esau towards Jacob. So we, the promise is not fulfilled in those two men. 
God's promise to Sarah that there are two nations in your womb and the older will serve the younger was never fulfilled in the life of those two individual men. In fact, when we look at the life of Esau, we see he was tremendously blessed by God. God made him wealthy and he had many children. And, and there are even some commentators that I've read who argue that Esau was saved. And they make a pretty good argument. So, Paul is talking here, as God was talking, not about Jacob and Esau as individuals, but about the nations that would come from them. And, and Paul makes it very clear. There's no ambiguity to it because then he gives us the fulfillment of the promise. First, he gives us the promise in verse 12. The older will serve the younger. Then he gives us the fulfillment of the promise in verse 13 when he says, just as it is written. In other words, this is just how it came out, folks. It's written down. This is exactly what happened. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You probably want to hear me explain that verse, don't you? I'll jump over to Malachi. <laughs> well, we are, we are really out of time, but let me just fudge a little bit and then we may need to clarify some more of it next week. What he's, what he's saying here, oftentimes when people read this, if they don't know their Old Testament, they think that God's statement, Jacob have I loved, that Esau have I hated, was stated to Rebekah before the children were born. But that is not the case. The statement in verse 13 is not part of the promise. It's the evidence of the fulfillment of the promise. The promise was the older will serve the younger and it was a reference to the nations. The statement, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, does not come in Genesis, but comes at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, as you pointed out. And it is a reference to the nations of Israel and Edom or Esau. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And so what Paul is what Paul is saying here is God made a promise to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger in Genesis. And when we get to the end of the Old Testament, we see, lo and behold, it's come true because God says to uh, uh, says to the people of Israel, he says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What does he mean? Well, some people conclude from this verse the idea of double predestination. Well, there's a couple major problems with that. One is there's ab- we have encountered nothing so far in Romans 9 that says anything about personal salvation, about somebody's eternal destiny. There's been nothing said about that in Romans 9. So we're not talking about individual salvation. We're not talking about individual predestination. At all. We're talking about Israel. The people of Israel and God's promises and purposes for them in salvation history. That's what we talked about so far. There's been nothing said about personal salvation. So to conclude from this, that there is some kind of double predestination, that God, God predestines some to heaven and God predestines some to hell, is to draw out of this passage something that's not anywhere in the passage. But some people conclude that God really does hate those he sends to hell. Well, if that's true, then what do we do with the teaching of Jesus when he says, if you're going to be not a disciple, you must what? Hate your mother and father. 
did Jesus mean we really need to hate our family, hate our parents? Is that what he meant? Well, we don't think that. Why don't we think that? Well, because that's a Jewish idiom. This whole love-hate thing is a Jewish idiom. It's a way of expressing a contrast. It does not mean that one literally hates someone. It's to show that one has chosen so much to favor one and he has shown so much favor to one that, that there is this stark contrast and the way the Jews would express this is with this idea of he loves one, he hates the other. There's no emotional animosity on God's part towards Esau. The reality is in Malachi is what had happened was God had favored Israel. And he had done all, and he details them in there in Malachi. And he tells them about all the things he did for Esau. And then he was having problems, I mean, for, for uh, Jacob, for the nation of Israel. And then he talks about Esau, Edom, the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau. And he says, now, you know, I've done all kinds of things to them. You know, I've disciplined them in this way and that way. And so if you look at the two of them, there's this stark contrast. And so he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And this is evidence of the fulfillment of God's promise that the older would serve the younger. And so what we have established is you can't just say, I'm a descendant of Abraham. You can't just say, I'm a descendant of Isaac. Because there is something, there's something that, that limits those that are really considered the children of God. And we know ethnically right now, we know that ethnically speaking, the descendants of, of Abraham are determined by those who came through Isaac and then those who came through Jacob. But we still haven't figured out what is the promise that defines true Israel. Paul is just trying to show that there is this principle in God's work where he limits that blessing. He limits that blessing by his promise in order that it might not be of works, but that it might be of him. That's what he's trying to show. Okay. So we'll pick that idea up and carry it further next week in the following verses.